my seven and a half year old son and I were walking down the street and my son says, look, they've got solar. You can see the solar, but no one can see geothermal. Don't you work on geothermal, mommy? It is certainly true that public awareness and acceptance is lower and in part that is because we're just not as visible. This is exactly what I want people to do after we release the report is get excited and get interested and get involved. This is EnergyCast, and I'm Jay Downhower. Today we're talking about geothermal energy, how its literal low profile has kept it out of the spotlight compared to the other renewable energy rock stars. But a new report could provide a roadmap and give geothermal its opportunity to shine. You've heard me say a lot that I don't understand why geothermal doesn't play a larger role. It's renewable, theoretically everywhere, carbon-free, and most importantly, always on. Yet, geothermal only makes up 0.4 of our energy portfolio. My guess says a combination of technology, regulatory, and awareness issues are to blame. Her organization knows that business as usual is not good for business, so they have written an extensive new report that aims to add up to 60 gigawatts of new power to the grid by 2050. That would be a 26-fold increase, and by that time would make up about 8.5% of the total generation. I've long said that the oil and gas sector should play a larger role. My guest agrees. She points out that there's actually been a lot of technology transfer between the two. About 20 years ago, the geothermal folks developed a new class of drill bit that the oil and gas guys use regularly. Geothermal, in return, is adapting some technologies for their wells, which can often be a lot hotter and harder than oil and gas wells. Segment 202, lateral grid 9. Captain America here blew the landing by 26 miles. Thermographics indicated that grid 9 was compressed iron ferrite. Which means you landed us on an iron plate. <laughs> they really need a hairy stamper type. That Bruce Willis character from Armageddon? We drill. Three dozen research calls, and every time the same man is recommended. He's worked on every terrain this planet can offer. Whenever they said it couldn't be drilled, this guy drilled it. Everybody on! But we don't. Instead, we need to develop and adapt our existing tech to find out where the hot spots are. My guess says they'll always have to drill, but tools at our disposal would mean that we'd have to drill a lot less to find good geothermal sites. Drilling can make up as much as half the cost of a facility. And there's also the public awareness issue. Windmills majestically spin in the breeze. Solar panels shine like black obelisks from 2001. Even pump jacks on an oil site let you know something is going on. But all the exciting parts of a geothermal plant are happening miles underground. It's no surprise that right now the most active geothermal energy sites are the ones where you can visibly see geysers spewing water out. Back in Louisiana, we never had such incredible displays of nature. Yet, my guess says what's really exciting is identifying the hot spots that are invisible. And wouldn't you know it, some heat maps show that there could be perfect geothermal zones where I grew up in northern Louisiana, a place considered so unremarkable that even other people from the state talk badly about it. Maybe we'll show them. Through a combination of tech transfers, awareness, and general enthusiasm, we could rely more on these hot rocks in the future 
future to power our energy needs. My guest today is Dr. Susan Hamm, Director of the Geothermal Technologies Office for the Department of Energy. Last month, they released an important report called Geovision, a roadmap to show how the U.S. could actually realize those 60 gigawatts of energy by 2050. This 200-page report is filled with information from a variety of stakeholders, and I'm convinced that just composing it made the sector stronger and moved beyond the business-as-usual pace. It was a thrill to get to talk to Sue and her team for this episode, I'm a huge geothermal supporter, and with a name like Geothermal Technologies Office, GTO, how could you not? I hope you enjoy my conversation with Dr. Sue Ham. Here with Dr. Susan Ham, Director of the Geothermal Technologies Office with Department of Energy. And Sue, we want to talk about your Geovision roadmap that you just released. And in it, you discuss that you could achieve significantly more geothermal power versus business as usual. We see business as usual a lot in this document. So, what made your group step back and say, hey, business as usual is not getting us where we need to go? I'm so glad you asked, Jay. The start of the geovision analysis really involved consultation with a number of geothermal industry experts. So what we kept hearing at conferences and conversations, et cetera, is that there's no shortage of geothermal resources, but there's a real shortage of technology, innovation, and industry momentum. The industry progresses slowly. It's progressing at about 2% per year. And that's really just too slowly. That's that business as usual case that we talk about a lot. And the geothermal community as a whole wants to change that. Geothermal's vast potential is really the driver for pushing for this. We know there's a lot out there. We want to be able to harness it for the country. And so the geovision analysis and the roadmap that you mentioned are largely built around that. And there's really three things that we looked at in the geovision. And one was technology improvements. Another was regulatory improvements. And a third one was greater public awareness. You discussed these technological and regulatory challenges that have held back geothermal. But if you could name a single reason, what would that be? Oh, Jay, do you mind if I do too? We can, can do, I do too. We can do too. Oh, fantastic. Okay, there's really two that come to mind. There's drilling and there's public awareness. So let's start with drilling. I mean, I talked about the technological advances, that that's important. And really, one of the biggest challenges there is drilling. Drilling costs a major roadblock to geothermal development. It can account for up to half of the development costs of any geothermal plant, and that's pretty big. We're working diligently to address drilling challenges. It's an area of critical research importance. We want to be able to drill faster, smarter, more cheaply. Drilling in the subsurface is expensive in any industry, oil and gas, mining, etc. And in geothermal, it's no different, but we have this added piece where there's a lot more heat where we're drilling and the rock is very hard and getting through that hard rock is expensive and difficult and risky. In order to combat that, what my office has done is look at, we have a solicitation out there, efficient drilling for geothermal energy. Under that solicitation, we've made 11 awards. Those awards are really looking at new technologies that can help us drill faster, cheaper, better, as well as techniques. The other piece I mentioned is the public awareness piece. Acceptance is a huge issue in geothermal and that's for both the electric sector and the non electric or direct use sector. As I think you may know, geothermal accounts for 6% of the electricity that's produced in California, 8% in Nevada. Those two states actually have a pretty good idea of what geothermal is, but throughout the rest of the country where geothermal energy produces only 0.4% of the entire electric generation, it's a much different story. And most people in those states, they've never heard of geothermal or just don't think of it when they're thinking about energy sources. And the same is really true of backyard geothermal. So 
geothermal heat pumps, ground source heat pumps, when you put in pipes in your backyard that bring heat from the earth into your home to directly heat and cool. The awareness for both electricity and non-electric sector, it's a key challenge to the geothermal development. So is there a major misconception about geothermal that you hear over and over again? I can imagine you're always at dinners and this comes up. What do you hear a lot of that might surprise some people? The first thing that I often get is, hey, if we take heat from inside the earth, are we going to cool the core of the earth? (laughs) And the truth there is that that's not going to happen. The earth's interior is immense. It's full of residual heat from the earth's formation. So whatever small portion of that we harness, it's going to be naturally replenished. It's a renewable resource. That's why we call it that. A second misconception has to do with payback time for backyard geothermal. It is more expensive to put in a geothermal heat pump when you're either doing a retrofit on an existing HVAC system or you're doing new construction. But the payback period can actually be as little as five to eight years. And then after that, you're making bucks. Fantastic. (laughs) And people who have these geothermal heat pumps love them. But there is this conception that they're just so expensive up front that you're not going to make your money back for 30 years. And that is just not true. Right. It's kind of like the rooftop solar situation, right? It's absolutely true. Yeah. The other misconception reading the GeoVision, I didn't know this, was that California on its own is the largest geothermal producer. I think we're all under this impression that Iceland by far produced the most geothermal. That's absolutely true. Iceland has a lot of geothermal. They also have a lot of hydropower. New Zealand has a lot of geothermal energy as well as Indonesia. But California produces more geothermal energy out of two places than any country in the entire world. Northern California in the geysers and another set of 10 plants down at the Salton Sea in Southern California. And together, those two plants, along with some other plants throughout the state, produce an immense amount. Talking about awareness, your report points out that geothermal is not tangible like wind and solar. Wife and I just went to France and we saw a bunch of windmills and that's very visible, but geothermal is not the same way. Do you think that's why it hasn't captured the public's imagination the way wind and solar recently have? I think certainly that is a large part of it. Geothermal energy infrastructure typically just has a lower profile. It's a smaller footprint. If you think about a big solar PV field or those large windmills, right? Those are very obvious as someone is just driving by. I'll just tell a little quick story of my seven and a half year old son and I were walking down the street and our neighbors have solar PV on their rooftop. And my son says, look, they've got solar. They've got solar. He said, you know, you can see the solar, but no one can see geothermal. Don't you work on geothermal, mommy? (laughs) And I mean, I've always thought we need to have some kind of sticker that goes on the front window, the way that the neighborhood watch stickers go on a front window. Like this house is heated by geothermal energy. But yes, it is certainly true that public awareness and acceptance is lower. And in part, that is because we're just not as visible. Talk about wind and solar again. You write in the report, quote, the investors expect a higher return on geothermal than wind and solar. Why is that? A lot of it has to do with the capital expenditure. Upfront costs of geothermal are significantly higher than they are for other energy sources. The reason for that really has to do with the subsurface risk. We know where the sun shines. We know where the wind blows. You can see those things, but you can't really see where you might find a geothermal resource at depth. And furthermore, even if you could see it, you don't necessarily know how strong it is. When lenders are looking to give money at the beginning of a project, they put that risk into what we call the cost of money. Let's say that a bank would loan money to someone who wanted to invest in solar at 8%. But if the same bank is looking to invest with geothermal, they're going to put it at like 14, 15% because they have to buy down the risk that maybe something's not going to come through in the end. So it's not that over time, investors expect return on investment. It's just that that initial piece is so expensive for geothermal that scares a lot of investors away. 
Right. And you've mentioned drilling a lot. You point out something in that report that I've been saying forever, which is why isn't this industry geothermal more like oil and gas? I mean, the most challenging part is the drilling, which they have down. So what do you think it'll take for that industry, the oil and gas, to lend more expertise to geothermal, maybe even some of those companies get involved in geothermal drilling? What do you think that's going to take? I first want to mention that the Geovision report specifically points out the value of the bi-directional learning between geothermal and oil and gas, because as you point out, there is so much in common with those two industries. We can look at the polycrystal and diamond compact bit, which is something that the Geothermal Technology Office funded in the 80s and 90s. I don't know how much you know about actual drilling, but when you're out on a site and you're drilling, rigs are incredibly expensive. It can cost $20,000, $30,000 a day. And when you need to change the bit and it's down a mile or two underground, you got to do what's called tripping out. You have to pull everything back out. And that is incredibly time consuming. So one of the things you want to do is reduce the number of times you have to trip in and trip out, you want a really hard bit. And so that was why the geothermal researchers were working so hard on that polycrystalline diamond compact bit, which has now been adopted into oil and gas. And at latest count, there are folks who think that this has saved about $15 billion for the oil and gas industry. And of course, we do the same thing back. So uh, one particular thing that we're doing is we have about $4.5 million looking at zonal isolation technologies. If you want to create a permeability in the subsurface, create fractures down at depth, you want to be able to put in a packer that stops the water and allows you to do what you need to do in the subsurface. And we have looked at using oil and gas packers. What we really need to do is adapt them to hotter temperatures and geothermal conditions. We do have money looking at adapting those technologies from oil and gas into geothermal. Now, I haven't spent a whole lot of time with drilling, but I have spent a lot of time with production during fracking. That's usually what happens after drilling. You mentioned fracturing a little bit. So can you frack a geothermal well? Geothermal drilling doesn't do fracking in the same way that an oil and gas well would. Geothermal operations inject water not to frack, but to mine heat energy from the rock. It's not intended to be sustainable, nor do the economics for oil and gas require it to be, and they can often pay back their well costs in a year. Geothermal requires mining the heat over larger volumes of rock and over decadal timeframes. Yeah, you talked about the payback period. I mean, look, one of the most difficult challenges bringing oil and gas folks over to geothermals, they probably look at the long build-outs, they look at the slower paybacks, and they go, hey, I could drill one well and make money much faster than a geothermal plant. Is that an issue why you don't see much crossover? Oh, it's definitely an issue. On a per barrel equivalence, if you look at the value of hydrocarbons, is significantly greater than geothermal fluids. Oil and gas is currently much more attractive to investors and operators for that reason. The rate of return over a few months to two years is much greater. A geothermal resource has a longer economic timeline, decades to many, many decades. And it's a renewable resource and it helps stabilize the grid. When you're talking about economic payback, a better comparison might be commodities mining. That's where the margins are lower, but the payback is longer. Yeah. Did you say there needs to be more investment in the exploration tools. <laughs> I think what a lot of the public see in reports like yours, these heat maps, right, where it's red in some places and green in others, and you would assume, hey, anywhere in this red area is good geothermal, but it's not that simple, right? It's not a satellite sweep to the United States and color-coded zones, and now we are guaranteed geothermal in these areas. So actually, satellite imagery can be used to help identify prospective areas. Effective 
geothermal exploration, it's a combination. It requires a mix of remote sensing and direct testing technologies. Our office is looking both into research of the geothermal, of the geophysical methods, such as seismic, electromagnetic, gravity, to better define geothermal resources. And we are also doing a very large project in what we call play fairway analysis, which is where you are combining data sets, like all those different data sets, whether they're from satellites or direct images, geochemistry, seismic. Can you combine those data sets in order to be able to pinpoint where you might be more likely to find a geothermal resource? A lot of times you'll see something like a geyser that shoots up into the air or you'll have hot springs. And those are systems that you can see. You know where those are. Mm -hmm. What we're really looking for are the hidden systems. If we can get that to work, that's going to bring down exploration costs and bring down that risk at the very beginning of a geothermal project. Right. But to be clear, we're never going to get to the point where you're not going to drill a test well before you put in a resource, right? For hydrothermal resources, you're right. You're always going to have to drill to get confirmation. That leads us actually into enhanced geothermal system. So we talked about the three things that you need for a geothermal system, heat permeability and a geothermal brine slash water at depth. What if you don't have those? What if you have heat but you don't have the permeability or the water. You can engineer the subsurface to create a geothermal resource. And that's what we do with enhanced geothermal systems. And we right now have our flagship initiative is called FORGE, Frontier Observatory for Research in Geothermal Energy. That's $160 million over nine years where we are looking to greenfield EGS, deep EGS, find a place where there is no permeability in the subsurface and no water in the subsurface, get down there, do drilling, create and sustain a reservoir over time. And we're just about to head into phase three of that. So we were down to a final site, which is in Milford, Utah. And starting in the fall, they'll be drilling and starting to create that reservoir. And one of the most exciting things about the forage program itself is that every year for the next five years, half of the money every year is gonna be used for site characterization and drilling, et cetera. And another half of it is gonna be used for solicitations that will be open to the entire geothermal stakeholder community to really get engaged and do the research that's gonna help us make enhanced geothermal systems a commercially viable option for the entire country. And let me ask you a little bit about these enhanced geothermal systems, because I think a lot of people are under the impression that you always, in a geothermal resource, introduce new water into the formation. I would assume that most of the time, it doesn't matter if there's water already there, you're going to introduce water and create a loop system. So when you're talking about a hydrothermal system, a system that already exists, there is water in the system already. Yeah. And what you're doing there is you're bringing that water up to the surface, using that to spin a turbine, we lose the heat that's in that water and then it gets re-injected back down. So you're right with the loop idea there, but in general, you may or may not have to add extra water to that system. When you're talking about an enhanced geothermal system, there you're really adding water to the system. And again, it's going to end up being pretty much a closed loop system. Okay. Sue, what do you hope folks will do with the report now that it's out? We hope that people will read it, <laughs> that they'll share it, that they'll get inspired, maybe do a podcast on it, for example. This actually gives me an opportunity to say thank you so much. You know, we talked so much during this podcast about public awareness and acceptance, and our office can't thank you enough for being willing to bring us on the show and talk about the kind of results that we can see, the kind of penetration of geothermal energy on the grid that we can get to when we actually make sure that we've got the public awareness and the technology improvements and the streamlined permitting and things like that. This is exactly what I want people to do after we release the report is get excited, get excited and get interested and get involved. Yeah, well, look, the honor is all mine. And I'm also thinking that now that the report is out, the act of writing it, putting it together was productive in that it brought together so many sources 
who could help make these recommendations possible. You've essentially built a team at the same time you've put this information out. You built this report, don't you think? Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, this report is the work of more than 100 contributors representing more than 60 organizations. The effort and commitment in getting this produced and published has been nothing short of amazing. And the Geothermal Technologies Office is so indebted to everyone who contributed to this. Collaboration in general is critical to advancing geothermal technology, and the Geovision has helped the geothermal community recognize that. And really, so the chapter five of the Geovision report is our roadmap, and that's really intended not just for DOE, for the Department of Energy, but for the greater stakeholder community. And so this is allowing us all to sort of get in line and say, okay, how can we reach these numbers, the 60 gigawatts that the Geovision document is promising? How do we get there? What technology barriers do we need to overcome? What policy barriers do we need to overcome? What all do we need to do in order to get everybody in line and moving forward? And I think that everyone who's involved in bringing the Geovision to life feels empowered to move it forward, to share it as widely as possible. And you ask, what do you hope that people will do with the report? What I should have also added to that is what we are going to do with it in-house is we're now looking at taking the Chapter 5 roadmap and really turning that into a multi-year program plan that will show us what we are going to prioritize in terms of research for the next five to 10 years. Well, that's really exciting. And, you know, Sue, I usually do a lightning round at the end of the episode, but DOE should be for everything. What I'd like to ask you, though, is your final thoughts on geothermal and its place in the mix and what you hope the future holds for that. I've been in government for a lot of years, and this is an unbelievable opportunity to work in a field where I have the government background. And everyone in our office just feels so lucky that we get to come every day to work and work on geothermal energy energy and geothermal energy development. You asked, how do I see geothermal energy in the mix? And we talked about the fact that it is less than half a percent of U.S. electricity generation right now. And the fact that we can see in the future that if we can bring the risks and costs down, that we can get to 60 gigawatts, which would represent by 2050, eight and a half percent of U.S. electricity generation. That's a pretty good deal. And what that says is that geothermal energy is and can be a key contributor to a diverse portfolio of affordable energy options in the United States. And that's really what brings us all to work every day and drives us. All right. Susan Ham, Geothermal Technologies Office with the Department of Energy. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you so much. That was Dr. Susan Ham, director of the Geothermal Technologies Office at the Department of Energy. Sue says their play fairway analysis, which she described in the interview, initially started with 11 sites. This summer, they started drilling at five locations. And she says every time, just as the data predicted, hot zone, hot zone. This, as well as their $160 million forge program, will hopefully show how to identify hidden resources and make geothermal in places that aren't always perfect. I want to thank Sue for her time and a big thanks to Jerry Watson at GTO for reaching out and setting this up. See, kids, apparently the government is listening and sometimes they want to be on your podcast. Also, thank you to John Horst in the communications department at DOE for his support. You can find plenty of amazing pictures on energy-cast.com as well as on Instagram at Host Energy. All guests are sent the wrong completed audio the week of release. So far, no complaints. Be sure to leave us a positive review on iTunes. That gets the word out. Music was produced by Sean Stroop at Stroop Loops. That wraps up episode 62. We're not moving too far from GTO's office next week. We'll be chatting with the country's foremost expert on next generation nuclear for DOE. You won't want to miss it. Until then, I'm Jay Dauenhauer. We'll see you next time.